Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. So many great movies, so many great conversations. But it's a lot of work. Producing this show week after week does require a lot behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. We had some great films in Season 8 that started their lives as books or plays, and you can find all of them on our Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals. That's the site where listeners can find links to purchase all the source material behind the adapted films we covered from season one up through our current season. For part of season eight, we had a series celebrating the 50th anniversary of films from 1968. We talked about 2001 and 2010 for our Odyssey series, both adapted from Arthur C. Clarke's novels. Man, the second one was so much better than the first, right? Don't you even get me started. <sighs> Need I bring up Under the Cherry Moon again? Yes, also so much better. <laughs> wait, wait, no, that's not what I... <sighs> Planet of the Apes kicked off its series based on the novel by Pierre Boulet. We covered Danger Diabolic and The Detective, adapted from novels for our 1968 crime films. Wait, wasn't that The Detective the prequel to Die Hard? They were both written by Roderick Thorpe, and yes, it's the same character in the books. I can't believe they even asked Sinatra if he'd be in Die Hard. That would have been yeah. weird. <laughs> Uh, Once Upon a Time in America was part of our Leone Once Upon a Time trilogy, adapted from Harry Gray's novel. And we looked at 1968 Best Picture nominees The Lion in Winter, Rachel Rachel, Romeo and Juliet, and Oliver! We also had an Ingrid Bergman series with adaptations like Spellbound, For Whom the Bell Tolls, Murder on the Orient Express, and Gaslight. We haven't talked about Gaslight. Stop gaslighting me! <laughs> Dive deeper into these books and more adapted films at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every purchase supports the podcast. Get the full list of adaptations that we've covered on all the Next Real family of podcasts and start your next read today at thenextreel.com slash originals.
the next reel, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Hi there! <laughs> and we spoil movies. Tonight on the show, it's just like last week, but with music. We're back with the 2005 remake of the 2001 musical remake of the 1968 Mel Brooks classic, The Producers! Let's assume for a moment that you are a dishonest man. Assume away. Under the right circumstances, a producer could make more money with a flop than he could with a hit. You bloody little genius! I want everything I've ever seen in the movies! All we have to do is find the worst play ever written. Max. What? This is it! Springtime for Hitler and Germany. Nathan Lane. Send me to the moon, you animal. I love you! Matthew Broderick. Max, she's fantastic. I've never felt this way before. Uma Thurman. Remember when Ula danced? Yeah. Ula dance again! God bless, sweet. And Will Ferrell. already had your toilet break i'm not going into the toilet i'm going into show business all right andy here it is now i know i said i watched this movie uh more than the original producers and i do it for the music and that really stood out to me this time uh, just give me give me the hot take what'd you think i enjoyed it <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll say this much I didn't dislike it as much as I originally, as my original opinion of the, of the original, the producers. And I don't like it as much as my recent viewing of the original, the producers. Well, that's good news. That's good news. (laughs) That feels good to me. So, uh, let's, let's recap. What are we doing? Why are we doing it? Uh, we're in the movies and their remakes series. And we are obviously talking about Mel Brooks, uh, the producers. Right, which is uh, the remake of the original from 1968, and uh, mm-hmm. that's kind of the overarching series. We're looking at films right now from 1968, celebrating their 50th anniversary, and uh, this is a 1968 uh, a remake of a 1968 film. So here we sit. We are in it uh, now. It. I don't know. I uh, I probably watch this in a little bit too much pro- too too close a proximity. Uh, to watching the film last week. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I really enjoyed my experience with the movie last week. And watching this one, uh, it, it just felt more like a retread to me. And I know that's not the reality of the film because I've watched it so many times uh, that that I always have a much better experience with it, uh, you know, when I sit down and watch it with the family. Yeah, when you're not watching it right after the other one. Yes. And so I, I, I think remembering that, and seeing all those differences. Exactly. I think that that hurt my experience. But one of the things that you uh, caught in uh, a review of the film from Stephanie Zacharek, I, I wonder if we could open with that, uh, if you would read that, because that is absolutely, I, I think, captures my experience of watching the film this time. And if you could do it in Stephanie Zacharik's voice. <laughs> does she does she talk like the lighting designer? 
<laughs> the producers is essentially a filmed version of a stage play in which none of the characters expressions or line readings have been scaled down to make sense on screen every gesture is played out as if the actors were 20 feet away in real life which means that by the time the performers are magnified on the big screen they're practically sitting in your lap the effect is something like watching a 3d imax film without the special glasses what'd you think of that I think it's an interesting reaction to it. And not having seen it on the big screen, I can't uh, speak completely to that. But I did make a note um, in uh, as I watched this, um, what is the line between a big comedic performance and being over the top? You know, where is that? Because I feel like it's a really fine line. I think that in the original film, we have some fantastic big comedic performances. I think all of the performers here... Um, are doing big comedic performances. And yes, it's, you know, the bulk of the cast came from the stage. So it does feel like they may be pulling that from the stage. Watching it, though, I largely didn't have a problem with it because it just felt like big comedy. But I can totally see how some people would say, wow, this is just over the top. These performances are huge. Nothing is scaled back. And maybe that is something that I pulled from watching the original is seeing how over the top those performances were in a straight non-musical film. This time I was like, you know, they it still is big and over the top and uh, in that broad comedic sense. And I kind of was OK with it largely. I, I, I can I guess I can see that. And, uh, you know, I, I'm probably hypercritical. But when I compare somebody, I, you know, two actors that I are known to be big and over the top. Right. Nathan Lane and Will Ferrell. And in I, I pretty much know what I'm going to get with Nathan Lane. Uh, and I was surprised with what I got with Will Ferrell, that his performance felt to me so much like a uh, like that amped up stage performance, even though I found him funny. I think what he delivered here as Franz was was really funny. I, I think the the contrast between the two, uh, you know, Nathan Lane felt like a, a stage sort of a predictably big performance and Will Ferrell's in, in some places felt over the top for me. And, and then, I, you know, now that I'm saying that out loud, it's, it, you know, it, it goes it sort of goes the other way <laughs> you know, that in some some scenes, I, you know, hold me, touch me. I think Nathan Lane uh, ends up being a, a, giving me a little too much. But uh, I also think, again, this is proximity to to the last film, which was full of, I think, so much more subtlety of, of the era. And I, I speaking specifically to Will Ferrell, I think it's it's interesting that that's your comment, because I found his performance to be largely the same broad comedy that he's always doing on the screen. And he wasn't on stage. And so it's funny that he's yeah. a standout to you as being um, uh, over the top, because I think that he's just being his typical screen. He's just self. being himself. Well, I think you're I mean, that's a great point. And, and I think that's why, to me, he comes off as a little bit over the top, because, you know, in other performances, I think, you know, Ula, even I think there's great risk for Ula to be one of those over the top performances. And I did not think that, that, that you know, her portrayal here was over the top. Matthew Broderick is a sort of famously subdued performer and i think uh when he's on stage it, you know it it 
feels really good. I mean, I think he brings a, he, he didn't feel over the top to me uh, in, in this film either. So it's really, you know, uh, Will Ferrell's performances end up standing out. And, and I think probably for a number of reasons, because he represents something unique in comic culture uh, right now, right? In terms of the gestalt of comedy and Funny or Die and SNL and, you know, the kinds of movies that he chooses to do, that he brings a lot of baggage to to movies. And uh, in this film, uh, while I liked his performance, generally I laughed at it, uh, it, it felt slightly jarringly out of place. I uh, agree. I agree. He, oh. <laughs> it, it, <laughs> I was I was I was girding for a fight. <laughs> no, it's interesting because uh, as as a, as the non uh, he and Uma Thurman came in as the non uh, Broadway uh, substitutes filling in for um, their uh, uh, parts, because I think that the person playing his part was cast in a different project. Uh, he had signed on to play actually Max on Broadway. So he had he had taken over for Nathan Lane and uh, ended up only having a cameo as the cab driver. As for Katie Huffman, who played Ula on stage, she just wasn't in the film at all. And they brought Uma Thurman in instead. Uma, I think, is great as Ula. I think actually her part is a much bigger part. There's a lot more to it. And I, I really liked her story and what they did with it. I uh it's it's really hard um looking at what Will Will Farrell is doing here and not feeling like it's the same as every other big performance that he's done in the past. You know, he it's yeah. just it's a Will Farrell performance. Yeah. And I'm watching Will Farrell. Um and I I I guess that's kind of uh part of my issue with it is it just it it just feels like just another Will Ferrell performance. It doesn't feel like there's anything special to it um for the film itself. And you know, I don't know if that's completely fair, but that's that is kind of how it ends up coming across. Um Well, in terms of how he uses some of that the broadness that he brings to his performances, um you know, I think the the music really kind of stands out. I mean the the Der Gutentag Hopklop is uh wonderfully funny and uh I, you know in terms of a kind of vaudevillian slapstick performance and i think all three of these guys on that rooftop are are really great and uh, a, a lot of fun to watch uh, it's it's the stuff where we get close up on farrell's face uh where he delivers his absolutely stock and trade will farrell uh that starts to feel a little bit uh, you know overblown uh for the film it is absolutely a matter a matter of opinion here and that i feel like it's overblown is you know is an exercise in the contrast between say you know will ferrell and in this case the foil who is you know matthew broderick in that scene um and uh you know i i totally get how you, you uh, others might love it but for me it's a that sort of buffoonery is just a little bit too far. Well, and it's funny because it's not like Kenneth Mars was was uh, a, a subtle performance. I mean, I know. He, why he was, do I have that? Why? What is the substantial difference between the two of them that I'm that I'm struggling with? Well, for me, I I just feel it just feels like Will Ferrell. It's it's just a straight up um, everything that I've seen Will Ferrell do type of performance, whether it's on SNL or any of the movies that he's been in, it's this type of performance. And so there's nothing special to it that defines Franz Liebkind. And um, 
and maybe it's just I haven't seen enough Kenneth Mars performances to be able to compare the two. Um, you know, I end up finding that uh, he works because the performance that he gives as Franz in the original um, just feels like such a unique character because I just, you know, he's a much fresher face in my mind. And, you know, I guess when when I see him doing something like the inspector in Young Frankenstein, um, and I, I know he was in some other Mel Brooks movies that aren't coming to mind, but um, it does seem like it, he is still he's doing the same broad comedy that that Will Ferrell's doing. But yeah, so it's a tricky thing. I, I, I guess it's just that Will Ferrell just seemed to be just so Will Ferrell in it. And I guess that's, you know, it, I don't know how fair it is to say, but it just ends up coming across that way. Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't feel fair, <laughs> right? But, but that's what it is because you could you could really say the same thing about uh, you know about him. But what about Gary Beach? Because Gary Beach is uh, as Roger DeBreeze is. Uh, you could say the same thing, and I don't have uh, I don't have that problem. I don't have that same problem with that the entire Keep It Gay sequence where we're introduced to so many uh, of the wildly over the top. Uh, exaggerated stereotypes of homosexuality, uh, just one after another, after another, after another, uh, that are, uh, I, I, you know, I don't know. I, I, in, in this sequence, I am, I'm okay with the humor and I find myself laughing and enjoying the ride that they're taking me on. And the song is terrific. I, I am too. And, and that's one of those tough things. I'm like, I, I don't know if I'm supposed to be offended by this because it's yeah. so like over the top gay caricatures in so many different uh, characters that are coming up on screen. But I know like, I don't know how many of them, but I know a good number of these actors who are playing these characters are gay themselves. And so mm-hmm. I, I'm like, well, they're playing it. So if they're I okay with it's it, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, uh, but I can see other gay people being offended by these stereotypes, but again, it's broad comedy and, um, I don't know, just like when you're making fun of, of cops in a broad comedy and, and they're, uh, they all have mustaches they all have, or something. Yeah. They're or, all eating donuts yeah, and they all spill something yeah, on themselves in the car. Right. It's the same sort yeah. of thing. And so I, I, I think it probably is easy to pull with the caricatures, but it ends up making a really funny song. Yeah. And, and yeah. then we have the lighting designer when she pops up, that just is another belly laugh for me. So I, it, it is, it is. And I think maybe that's the, that's the trick of this, of this property is that it is able to, it, it makes fun of everything, right? Not just lampooning Hitler. It's making fun of all the extremes in the ecosystem of, of, you know, stage production. Right. Exactly. It really is kind of hitting, hitting at everything from from the the just broadway and the uh, nazis and show business and uh just you know the producers the accountants the money man every everybody i mean you know it's not we don't spend as much time with john lovitz as the boss but still as the boss of the accountants we're looking at him and making fun of him as well. So it's like, it's one of those things where it's just, they're laughing at everything and everybody. And I think it ends up being okay. And it, it, that's largely what I said last week too. It, I think it ends up working. And even though we're, we're missing the LSD character here, um, we end up spending a lot more time with the gay characters. I think that it ends up, um, for me, it, it ends up working and it's, it ends up being okay. 
the central I, I know we want to talk more about the, some other folks in the movie, but in particular, but obviously the the biggest difference between this film and the last film. So this as a remake is that there's this interstitial remake in between that adds music to the whole right. thing, not just the stage performance. And so this is the thing that I have been most interested in hearing from you. Uh, what do, does the music add enough to merit a remake is it something that you felt like was uh was earned uh or was it is it just kind of an unnecessary thing i love well and, and this is funny because it it brings up a, a question i asked you last week about um movies adapted into musicals and i should have clarified uh, because my question really was non-musical movies that were adapted into mu into, right. into broadway musicals um and even then, as I was doing research on it, I still realized, oh, there are so many more than I ever remembered. So it's it's uh, it's not like this was an original idea, taking a straight film and turning it into a Broadway musical. Um, right, because I think we came up with like The Lion King, but The Lion King was but a, that's musical. a musical. And, see, the, yeah. and that's that was the the. Um, what I didn't phrase properly in the question last week, what I was thinking in my head was non-musicals that were turned yeah. into musicals. And what'd you find? I mean, you, you, if you, you oh, did there's your a big, ton. Uh, fancy I mean, research, what you, what's your, cause I can't think of any well, off the top of my head. I, I can, there are a lot. Um, I, I, and, and, <laughs> you take my well, word for it. <laughs> let, well, here, let me, let me throw this at you. I think this would be a great list to put together for our Saturday matinee. Um, for this particular movie, so I was like debating: should That's I? That's weird. Some... I'm not available. Hmm. <laughs> should I throw them out, or should I? Uh, should we save them? Give me just give me are... a sample. Give me a sample that's maybe wouldn't make it to your list. Uh, Pygmalion turning into My Fair Lady. Oh, all of a sudden I see where we're going. Yes, I don't even need you to say anymore because <laughs> now they're coming to me, and I want to save them. For the list. You're absolutely right. There are probably uh, more than than we can count. Yes, there are a hefty number of them. Okay, so continue. I think that what Mel Brooks did by turning it into a Broadway show was very smart. It allowed to expand the story. We got some additional elements. Um, he changed the time period from the, the late 60s to the late 50s, which is why we dropped the LSD character and why he reworked it to have um, Roger, uh, well, to have Fritz cast as Hitler and then Roger end up taking over the uh, for him, which I think ends up working out quite nicely. Um, although I do have a question about that that I'll get to. Um, but I, I think that the, the musical songs are, they're really strong. They allow for a lot of fun. They um, help the story along in fun ways. And I, I don't know, I, I felt like it opened up the story in ways that worked really nicely. Now, I haven't seen it on stage. I feel like I would probably prefer the stage version to the film version. My issue with the film version came because Susan Stroman, who ended up directing the show on Broadway, um, and obviously it was a huge, huge, huge success. It won 12 Tonys more than any other um, Broadway show. It still holds that record. Um, it, it just raked in oodles of money. Um, and I'm assuming that Mel was so happy with all of the success of the show that he said, hey, let's make a movie. You direct it. 
and let her direct it. And I just feel like she's a stage director. And I feel like the musical numbers are, they look great, but they all feel like stage performances. And I felt like the direction outside of the musical numbers ended up feeling kind of flat. It just didn't uh, sell me or the way that uh, Mel Brooks's direction did in the short, uh, shorter 1968 version. He was a he was a creative director, did some nice things and kept the pace up. And I just didn't feel like she did the same thing. The way this landed for me, it felt like it didn't take any uh, substantial new risks in the non-musical parts over what we already had in the original film. It, it the the apartment was very very similar. The the production design was very similar. It was an homage to the original. You could kind of feel it. Uh, I actually, you know, my wife and I were sitting in bed last night as we were watching this, and she said, you know, because she didn't get a chance to watch the other one with me, and she said, so uh, this is wait, which version is this? I said, great question. So we watched the entire sequence when they discover springtime for Hitler. When you know they're uh, Leo and Max are are reading scripts, and we went back and we watched the 68 uh, version and it is I, I mean these scenes are so close uh, to how they are staged how they're blocked how they're directed uh, that you really feel that this was a missed opportunity to actually create a film of a great musical in the spirit of of a modern movie musical that was just missed in in the spirit I think of doing too much of an homage to um, you know to what we didn't need to be homaged. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And I, I think that's always the struggle when you are doing remakes and uh, looking at the story. What are you going to do that's different other than just saying it's Hamlet and I've always wanted to play Hamlet? Yes. You know, that same that's a sort different of mentality. Case, right. That's, nobody's saying that about Max Bialystok. Well, I, 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 I would think that some are after seeing Nathan Lane do it because he did such a good performance. Yeah. I'm assuming on Broadway that some people are like, I totally want to play that part because it's fun and it's big and it gives me a lot to do. But not you can't you can't put that in the same league as Hamlet. No, 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 you can't. <laughs> but but yeah, but it uh, it doesn't end up making it something that uh, that warrants uh, just kind of shaking it up and 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 making a film out of it and i guess that's my issue is uh and i'm fine that they they made a film of it but i just felt like it was i may have well have just been watching a filmed version of the stage show yeah and you know i think principally i'm okay with that you know and and i think when you to me i love the music i really adore the music yeah. and it, it is a well-earned experience particularly the big numbers i want to be a producer is a fantastic number that is beautifully staged you know even if we take that it it is you know it's filmed like a stage piece uh, on a big glorious set but a set that you can kind of imagine in the age of modern broadway that they would they're doing something like this i like you have never seen the the staged version of this uh, but i love what they did with it the file cabinets that open up the way the accountants dance up on the on the desks the uh you know i love the comedy of the the precision uh dancers you know as we get the uh the woman who is not meant to be a dancer right. <laughs> it's well, the, just a 
I love the staircase that that has his name in lights as they're all coming dancing down it. I mean, and and all of the shows, you know, Leo on Leo or Bloom in Bloom, all the names of the shows that he's going to do that are about him in lights. I think it's just it's gorgeous. It's really beautiful. The the you know you get that that beautiful sort of um, a classic mirror finished you know black dance uh, dance floor with all the lights. It just it looks pristine and perfect and uh, and it really showcases the talent that Matthew Broderick is on stage you know and and for people who you know know him uh, again principally as Ferris Bueller he's an incredibly talented stage actor and most of his career is doing stuff like this uh, and um, so it, it was it, it's just a lot of fun to watch him uh, you know do a, a kind of an old-fashioned movie musical well and that's what it ended up feeling like it felt like an old-fashioned movie musical like the way that some of the dance scenes were shot just felt like they were they were just doing the head-to-toe shots which is fine right but and and actually i appreciated that if that's what they were going for but then every now and then they would cut in in something that just didn't feel like it was doing that anymore and it took away that head-to-toe kind of dance element and i'm like why did they just cut that like and that's that's my issue is i i just felt like sometimes um stroman really did not know how to direct a film and it ended up taking away some of that stage magic for me and you know so i mean it was it was fine i still think that it's effective uh and fun and it's i mean it you know it's a great story and it's, it's some great big performances and so i have fun with it i just i don't feel like it was directed as well as it could have been yeah i agree uh, okay now all of that being said i now i have a question because this is this is it seems like a subtle change but it ends up feeling like a a, a a bigger sticking point when they when mel brooks adapted it for the stage initially because i'm assuming it's the same going from stage to uh to this version mm-hmm. i i think that when you have lsd playing hitler it ends up just working all the way through and it all makes sense because it's he's such a crazy character that when it comes that he's the one who's playing hitler it turns into this this farcical production and it ends up making sense and you can see why people are going to find it genius my question is in the remake they cast fritz as the lead now the only reason that Roger ends up performing it is because Fritz falls off screen and breaks his leg, which is is funny. But then we see the show and Roger is actually perfect in the show for what the show is. How would that show have played if Fritz was the one who is the lead? And and I don't think it would work. Like I look at that. I'm like, it's it's it kind of all of a sudden becomes a nonsense production because I can't imagine Fritz. And that was something I liked about the original is that Fritz was really upset with how they were performing it here. uh, Fritz clearly had been doing rehearsals because it's opening night and had seen how the show was going to go and he was okay with it. And and Roger obviously brings a whole other level of gayness to the role, but still, it's still the same same show. And so I'm really I'm not sure that that 100 percent makes as much sense as it did in the original. And I wonder how they arrived at that point. You know, they, they, you know, it's, it seems clear on rewatch that they needed to give, uh, you know, give him more, uh, Franz, a couple of musical numbers. So we had to keep him, you know, present in the story up to that point. 
knowing that he's not going to do it because Roger just has to do it. Uh, I don't know. I don't know how the mechanics would would work the other way, but I'm I'm with you. It it always feels like whatever you think about the uh, about how it ended up, it always feels like a cop out to do you know throwing Farrell down the stairs. Uh, I've broken both my legs. I uh, I I am not pleased with that gag every well, time I hear it. And it's funny because it ends up feeling like uh like Mel Brooks pulled it from Austin Powers, um because. Will Ferrell, you know, his character yeah. has those, you know, he dies off screen, but, and he's always like, I think I've broken my leg, yeah. but I'm going to, and it's all off screen. Why plays, have you shot me? And it plays <laughs> yes, funny. Yeah. Um, and it's, but it's like, and it's weird that it's Will Ferrell. Cause obviously I'm assuming this is how it was on stage and it wasn't Will Ferrell, but now it's Will Ferrell doing a Will, Will Ferrell performance Gag. of Austin Powers here. <laughs> like, that's a very strange moment. And yeah, I, I I almost wonder if it would have just made more sense if right out of the gate, they just cast Roger at, or he cast himself to do it because maybe he couldn't find the right Hitler. And maybe that yeah. would have just made more sense because the show is designed really for him to do it. It is designed for him to do it. It's funny with him in it. We knew it's coming, or maybe we didn't. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't remember not knowing that it was coming, so I, I, I guess I shouldn't say that. Uh, there's a bit, the break a leg bit is funny, right? Where they're yeah. going through and, and doing that whole song, and that's really funny, and there's a great moment, a great set of physical gags where you have Max, you know, throwing <laughs> throwing the black cat under the ladder into the door, right. yelling break a leg. There's, there's funny stuff going they're on there. Good luck. You're yelling good luck. I mean, yeah, right. Good luck. Uh, it, it's really, uh, it's really very funny. But leading that into uh, the the you know big central transition, it feels like a cop out. It feels like a twist that a mechanical twist that we just uh, uh, that we just had to get in there without thinking, you know, maybe far enough ha- ahead. It's one of those changes that they they make to this that I, I struggle with. And they made a, a lot of the changes. The bulk of the changes, other than obviously adding the music, really comes at the end. Um, mm-hmm. of the story we you know uh fritz does not uh they don't put this whole plan in place of blowing up the theater and then um max gets arrested with fritz and leo and ula run off to rio which is kind of an odd uh twist that i didn't see coming and i was like oh that's interesting it did start feeling like it was getting longer uh like the film was dragging on a bit though and uh, that that's okay so interesting thing you you when you did the name of Ula last week I didn't say anything but in no place last week do we see that they got married right in the 68 version no and it, I even looked in the script because I said yeah. that and then I'm like I wonder where the, where that came up and I think that you said somebody, oh I think they got married yeah, yeah I think somebody added that to like the wrong Wikipedia page or something yes. because that information yes, I think so. is yeah, it's it, not in it's the not accurate. Version. You're right, exactly. right. It's only in this version, and it it plays well. But what did you think about that? I mean, was that did that hit you straight? It it felt by that point like this is now playing out the way that a Broadway show needs to play, where there's that that rift between our heroes. Um, Leo disappears with Ula and has that whole Rio song. You get the 11th hour song from Max about being betrayed and, um, only to be only to find redemption w- with Leo when Leo comes into the courtroom for that final speech and they have that song together. Um, by that point, it ended up feeling 
um, very expected. And it probably did on Broadway too, but um, again, it's Broadway and it's just kind of a pattern that Broadway shows have. Here on screen, it just felt like it was bogging down a bit. I struggle with it because uh, for a, a couple of reasons. Uh, first, I I prefer how tight the '68 version is that just gets us to the end. Uh, this the the entire end sequence here is way too long for me. By you know, I don't know, a half hour it just feels too long. Max's recounting of the entire story is a song that I find insufferable like i just i just can't get through it i need to move on i I love the production design the jail cells are cool but i I just the song is i don't i don't get its its purpose as a recap uh, other than to allow the the actor to show off and it's not it's just too fast it's there's too much i don't it's too long yeah i agree You, you know and then the rio thing uh i didn't need to go to rio I think they took us to Rio and it's a distraction. Uh, what I really wanted to get is just let's just see, get, get to court. Let's get to court and have the entrance and, you know, even put a title card up that says, you know, six months later or something like that. I, whatever, just move, move along. Uh, it, it was just too much. So I, I think the, the music is well earned. I think it's a fun movie, if not as strong as last week, but the, the final act, it, it feels so much like a stage denouement that uh, it probably would work much better on stage. It just doesn't work in the movie for me. I struggle with it. And that's not when I want to start feeling, you know, edgy uh, is at the end. I want to be feeling great with the rest of the characters. And in this movie, I'm, I struggle with it. it. I would think that in a film version of this, like we would get the um, uh, an issue I have with the way that it's structured is Leo has no logical reason to change his mind and come back. We don't see that change in him, that that final bit of growth in his character arc where all of a mm-hmm. sudden he realizes that Max is a friend and he comes back. And so it, it ends up feeling like this kind of forced surprise to have him show up and, and sing this song. And yes, it's great and everything. And I feel like Maybe it worked on stage, but in a film version, I'd want to see a little bit of that that struggle that Leo is having in Rio and and really thinking about this dilemma and finally making this decision. And I think that would maybe have helped a little bit, even if it did make it longer. But I felt like it's one of those things that would actually have strengthened it. Yeah, you know, I, I'm... Um, I'm prone to think of Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, you know, which was uh, another great movie that was turned into a fantastic musical about uh, really not great people. And um, they do a lot of this moving around and, and bringing people back in after uh, having changes of hearts. And and uh, it's done in such a smart way that uh, that, you know, you don't actually need to see some of the changes of hearts or some of the changes of perspective. It happened off screen, but it just you it erupts through song uh, in a way that feels earned. And that's something that's missing, I think, in this in this bit, the real bit. Yeah. And. There are some there we get like three um, oddly placed, uh, I guess I'll call them cameos right at the end that just feel like uh, thrust upon us very suddenly um, that just I'm like, why, why are these people all of a sudden showing up at this point in the movie? It just was a little much to me we have David Huddleston, Michael McKean and. Um, oh, yeah. In the prison. Well, Michael McKean's in the prison. David in Huddleston the is the judge. 
And, right, right. Uh, then what's his name? Uh, Richard Kind is the jury foreman. <laughs> That's right. What are these guys doing here? Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's a, it is a star-studded uh, final five minutes. Right. <laughs> That's what it felt like. Okay. Uh, what, do you, what do you think about the fact that they are, uh, that they're, you know, we actually see what happens outside of prison, right? They're released and they become producers again. And this time they're actually doing something well. I mean, not producing, but it's they're still terrible producers. And I, 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 I struggled with the fact that the randomness of that moment when, you know, you're so wonderful, they're freeing you like, OK, yeah. but they're still like awful producers. And they're they're making they're putting together a terrible plan. They're going to run into the exact same problem. Like, how is this showing any sign of success? <laughs> Just, you know, I didn't. I, I struggled with that. I struggled with that last bit. And I feel like it would have worked better if we just saw them performing the show in jail. Like they said, next week we're in Leavenworth. Okay, let's take go to Leavenworth. We'll watch them perform it. Or yeah. even that make that the end. Next week we're in Leavenworth. You yeah. know, get on. Let's go, boys. Uh, uh, you yeah, know, right, whatever. Right. I, yeah, it just felt like too much. Too many jumps, too many moves, too many jumps. W- one of the things we talked about uh, last week is breaking the fourth wall. Uh, they, they do it subtly in the movie. Uh, in 1968, it changes tone here. Well, and I guess that's a musical thing, right? Um, yeah. it, but it's interesting to see because Mel Brooks used it in the original uh, to have uh, Max Bialystok talk to us briefly. Here we have, in that exact moment, he doesn't break the fourth wall. In fact, we don't have the fourth wall breaking until um, until Matthew Broderick is singing uh, That Face with with Uma and uh, he is singing to camera, and that's one of those musical moments where he's singing to camera, breaking the fourth wall, and by doing so, she's not hearing him, right? It's like now right. we're inside right. his head. So it's actually a real fourth wall usage, which I thought was kind of interesting. And then, of course, you have that great little bit at the end, which felt like a nod to Ferris Bueller, um, mm-hmm. which is kind of fun when they're all talking, uh, looking at us, so. Oh, uh, you mean the, this is the post credit? The very end, post credit. Yeah, role. right. Uh, I want to go back to that face, which I uh, I just uh, nod to the production design and uh, general production of that musical number, which I thought was per- a, a real standout piece. Um, it, it was beautifully shot. It was beautifully choreographed. The color uh, the of costumes her in that blue on dress. Uma. Yeah. Oh, the uh, costume on Uma and that costume change, right? Yeah. Uh, that, that was be- lovely. Blue, beautiful her- blue dress. Her dress goes from something just around at the knee to uh, that beautiful, long, flowing, multi-layered thing that just became such a showpiece of the era of the late 50s uh, of movie musicals. I mean, I just thought it was a it was a real bell ringer. Definitely. Uh, What's your favorite song? Ooh, it's hard to uh, to not say keep it gay, because I think that that number (laughs) It's just so funny. I had just a, a, a laugh a minute with that song. Um, I uh, But Springtime for Hitler, I thought they did a great job with. That blended with Heil Myself. Yeah, yeah. It's and, interesting that you say Springtime for Hitler, which was the only music that was actually in the other in the yeah, original right, version. Right, right, right. Yeah. But, but they expanded it by kind of adding that Heil Myself and right. the reprise. And all of that together, I just think they did a nice uh, bit with it. But I mean, all of it, really. I mean, we can do it. I thought it was a nice duet between Max and Leo. And and lovely that they end up being, uh, you know, on the fountain 
again. Yeah, you know, right. we get that little reprise of that. Uh, you know, as they shot that again, that was lovely. I think uh, when you got it, thought it was uh, was wonderful. Is especially that she the way they set it up. You know, I I heard somebody yell at me across the street when you got it flaunted, and I was inspired to write this song yesterday, and here it is. <laughs> I thought that was that was really great, especially the way they go into it, where she goes over to give herself a key on the piano, and she hits one note, and the whole chord plays. Like they're just leaning into the fact that we have a magic <laughs> orchestra, and I right. I just am so tickled by uh, some of those little beats. And I, I love, uh, I, I think of Franz's songs. I definitely prefer the uh, the Deutsche Band song that he uh, yes. does as Aber his performance. Yes, a Deutsche Band. Yeah, with the little, with the big, <laughs> yeah. with, the bang, with the big, big boom. You know, it was, it was a very fun one. So it's it was very fun and totally sells the Broadwayness of it. Yes, yes. I, you know, I think that uh, again for me, the the highlight is going to be. You know, I want to be a producer that's such a showstopper. Uh, but, uh, you know, I'm I'm sold by flashy lights and things. So it's uh, it's a big number and they do a yeah. great job with it. And uh, yeah, I, I, I thought they uh, uh, it, it, it's nice the way that that one blends with the whole accounting world, that whole unhappy. Yeah. Oh, unhappy. so good. It reminded me so much of, uh, you know, Joe versus the volcano. Right. You have right. those wonderful musical cues. Uh, it just felt very familiar. Yep, yep. Uh, and that, that Nathan Lane was in Joe versus Volcano. I couldn't, uh, I, I couldn't uh, stop thinking about that. And I couldn't stop thinking that the two of them were in Lion King together. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's really funny. I don't think I, I didn't. I, it took me a long time to make that connection. In particular, yeah. that's funny. Uh, can you tell me something? I know that you have a real critical eye for this stuff. Um, when you look at at effects work in musical theater, uh, where do you stand on? Uh, robot pigeon puppets <laughs> you feel good about those you how do you know, feel about about the sieg heil puppet pigeon i uh thought they were so dumb <laughs> i just did not need them if that's what if that's what susan is going to bring to the table um to change things up a little bit it, just you know get rid of it it just yeah, didn't work yeah. at all for me you know what i was watching this movie and i had not seen your notes yet and I mean, I'm, I'll just say Andy wrote literally in the note that we share for the show. He wrote, man, do I hate pigeon puppets? And <laughs> I, I, you, I could have written that myself as I was watching the movie. I'll bet pigeon puppets saluting is driving Andy batty. <laughs> and what's funny is those are um, uh, Henson puppeteers doing the work here. And I just, I, you know, the, the work just felt kind of sloppy and, and stagey and it just, it just didn't work. And it's just like, was asking myself, why did we have to go to this level? Cause it's so dumb. Ugh. It, it was, it was dumb, but by, by, it, it had to have been dumb by intention. I mean, this was a thing they wanted to, you, you know, that they were just but not trying to be but dumb. What's, yeah, I'll know. But what's the benefit? I, like, I just didn't see any benefit to doing that. I just, I ended up finding that the pigeon element was uh, just, I don't know. It just felt kind of like uh, a much lower level comedy than some of the other stuff. Although Mel Mel Brooks does the voice of the pigeons. Yes. And he, the cat. Yes, he does. <laughs> yes, he does. He's very good. <laughs> You wanted to talk more about Susan. I, oh, I just thought it was really interesting. So so Mel Brooks originally hired Susan and her husband, Mike Ockrent, to do the Broadway show. Mike was hired to direct it, and she was hired to be the choreographer. Um, 
Well, as it turns out, he ended up dying in 1999, and uh, she agreed to take on both roles. And so she did the directing and choreography for the Broadway show, which is probably another reason Mel loves her so much. And uh, that's really kind of all she uh, did. I mean, all she did to uh, to kind of get signed on to direct the feature version. And it's uh, yeah, it's it's interesting. I just I wish that I found her to be a stronger director. The choreography in the film was fantastic, though. Yeah, it was was lovely. Clearly a strength. Yes, yes, definitely. We've already talked about uh, Mr. Lane and Mr. Broderick and Ms. Thurman. I just want to say about the two of them that they are playing two characters that are very big. And we talked about what Zero Mostel and Gene Wilder were doing last week and how big they were in the great um, way they played these characters. I it's they're really hard characters to do that differently when it's a remake. But I do feel as I watch this that that both Nathan and Matthew were still bringing some unique things to the parts. And I enjoyed that even when it's Matthew as as Leo kind of pulling out his his uh, little blue blankie and rubbing it under his chin and and everything. It's it's like the exact same stuff. But I still felt like there was enough of Matthew coming through. He was doing something a little different that made me end up really appreciating what these two were doing here. Yeah, it didn't. Uh, you know, I I struggled a little bit this time, uh, shaking Wilder from my mind. I, Nathan Lane, I think, is uh, is enough of a he's an eraser pounding kind of a performance, right? Yeah. I mean, you, you watching Nathan Lane, you you just sort of you are able to clear the slate of of the former experience. I didn't think of Zero Mustel at all. Uh, it took me a little bit to shake Wilder out of my head. Uh, particularly the, you know, I'm wet and I'm in pain, you know, that the whole sequence when he's doing sequences that that, you know, were defined so critically by Gene Wilder's performance in that in yeah, the sequence. Right. It, it's hard to to not see Broderick playing Leo as Wilder or Wilder as Leo. And uh, but but generally, I like him so much that he he always gets the benefit of the doubt for me. And um uh, you know, and I think ultimately the the way the film plays out, he's just a lot of fun to watch. And Uma Thurman, I mean, did you did you expect this from Uma Thurman when you when she comes on stage? No, I was really uh, surprised. I, I I've seen her in the posters and all the marketing material, and so I was like, of course they're going to cast Uma to be the the big Swedish bombshell. But um, she actually carried it really well. She does the accent well. Um, she does the singing and dancing really well. Uh, Susan actually commented on that. She said she was really lucky that Uma had done the Kill Bill movies before this because it made her really limber and she was able to really kind of just move her body to do all the things that needed to be done to make it work. And I mean, I just thought she was she was really enjoyable in the part. And I was excited to see Uma performing like this. And man, did it really stand out how tall she is when she stood next to Matthew and Nathan. <laughs> she is uh, really, really tall. She's really tall. Yeah. Do you know how tall? How tall is Uma Thurman? She's 1.83 meters tall. Uh, that's what I was going to say. Six feet tall or 1.83 meters. How about this? How tall is Matthew Broderick? How tall is Matthew Broderick? Do you want to guess? Five, six. Five, eight. Five, eight. Okay. Five, eight. How about Nathan Lane? Five, nine. You think he's taller than Broderick? 
He looked a tiny bit taller. Well, you're wrong. He's 5'5". Five, five. Okay. So he's shorter. Get that. So there you go. But I, she's 6'8". Six, six, uh, yeah, I guess that's... She's, she's tall. She's yeah. tall and in heels. When she comes out and she's like toward the very end, the last... It feels like she's seven feet tall. Yeah. The, 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 last, <laughs> the last scene of Springtime for Hitler in the reprise... Uh, and she comes out on stage when all the stormtroopers are out there. I swear, she looks like her legs are a mile long. The way that yeah. she's wearing the heels and doing the little kicks and everything. It's just, it's crazy how just tall she looks. And it makes you wonder, doesn't it, how tall Will Ferrell is? How tall is Will Ferrell? Well, he's 6'3", Andy, so I'm so glad you asked. He's 6'3". Oh, how tall is Gary uh, Beach? Because he's also tall. I He is also tall, and I will vamp for just a minute and say that Gary Beach is, uh, he is, doesn't, it doesn't even say, it doesn't, oh. he's 5'10". He's 5'10". Okay. Yeah, he's not that tall. Um, what do you think of the Stormtrooper thing? Gary Beach, I just have to say, was an absolute treasure, yeah. and yeah. Uh, sadly, I, I read that he passed away this past July. He did. That made me yeah, sad to read. Sad. I just wanted to say about that the stormtrooper bit at the yes. end. Yes. Uh I found that much more I- impactful than the stormtrooper bit in the original film. I think the way they architected the stormtroopers coming out and uh, on the black stage with the mirror uh, up above them so you could actually see the swastika that way I thought that was clever and beautiful and uh, haunting and uh just r- intimidating. A couple points. Um, they cast only men who are exactly six feet tall to play the stormtroopers. So Uma oh. actually could have been one. She could have. And that was a, that was a one element where I felt like Susan was doing something interesting with the directing, but that's because she was doing a an homage to Lenny Riefenstahl and the uh, Triumph of the Will uh, right. with uh, the way that... Lenny captured some of those low Dutch angle shots of the stormtroopers walking by and and uh, Susan does that here and captures that exact type of shot, which looks really nice and creative until you realize, well, she's just paying homage to those other ones. But it's still it worked. And that's why it worked so well for Lenny. Whoever did it, Andy, it's stunning. <laughs> still stunning. Who else do you want to talk about? Uh, you know, just uh, Roger Bart was great as as Carmen Ghia. Some really strange and odd things coming out of his mouth, the way that he was doing that performance. But I ended up enjoying it. It was just so big and strange. Um, and uh, But the, the one that I really wanted to point out um, is Jim Borstelman. Um, and this is something that you get a lot in theater, where an actor will play a number of different roles. In the case of Jim Borstelman, he actually plays four roles in the film. He plays Scott, the choreographer, which is <laughs> really funny. Um, he plays <laughs> Donald Dinsmore. And Donald Dinsmore is the one who comes to audition that does, I'm going to do the little wooden boy. And he yes. does the little dance with his arms pinwheeling with around and stuff. In the glasses, like the real awkward looking guy. Uh, he plays a little old lady. And at the beginning of Springtime for Hitler, he plays the Bavarian peasant, who's the one kind of uh, the main guy in the center singing um, the opening number. That's fantastic. And then speaking Uh, of little old ladies, um, there were 83 people performing as the little old ladies when they do the uh, their big song and dance number. As compared to 55 stormtroopers or or 29 accountants. 
There were if just only so the many little, little old ladies, ladies would have risen up against the Nazis, is what we're saying. <laughs> exactly. That's, That's the joke here. <laughs> How to do an award season. It did so well uh, on stage uh, to get any attention for the movie. This, uh, unfortunately, did not get recognized nearly like the stage version did. Although it did still have one win and 17 other nominations, the one win was at the Hollywood Film Awards, where Matthew Broderick won Supporting Actor. Some of the nominations uh, over at the Golden Globes, it was nominated for Best Musical or Comedy, and it lost to Walk the Line. Um, Nathan Lane was nominated for Best Actor in a Musical or Comedy. He lost to Joaquin Phoenix. And uh, Will Ferrell was nominated for Best Supporting Actor, but lost to George Clooney in Syriana. Um, also, the original song, you know how they like to do it, where you have a Broadway show and then they adapt it. Well, you always have to add a new song just so you can get a nomination for it. That's what Mel Brooks did here. He wrote the song, There's Nothing Like a Show on Broadway, which is the one that kicks off the end credits. Mm-hmm. Got a nomination for that song here, but lost to the song, A Love That Will Never Grow Old from Brokeback Mountain. Um, some of the other awards, um, this I think might be telling, over at the Stinkers, Bad Movie Awards. <laughs> I, I love their category names. Worst Sense of Direction, parentheses, stop them before they direct again. Susan Stroman was nominated, but lost to Uva <laughs> Boll for Alone in the Dark, which... <laughs> Uh, Matthew Broderick, sadly, was nominated for Worst Actor, uh, but lost to Jamie Kennedy for Son of the Mask. Um, Worst Song or Song Performance in a Film or End Credits. Uh, Gary Beach for the song Keep It Gay. Lost to Jessica Simpson singing for the movie Dukes of Hazzard. These boots were made for walking. And they have the Less Than Dynamic Duo Award. Um, not Nathan Lane and Matthew Broderick were nominated, but they lost to Samuel L. Jackson and Eugene Levy for the film The Man, one I completely forgot about. And last but not least, the worst remake. Uh, they lost that award to yours, mine, and ours. Okay. See, I think we should take it as uh, both a sign that they were in that that particular running for all of those awards and that they lost all of those awards. I think it says exactly where this movie <laughs> is going to be remembered. I think you may be right. How to do at the box office. Susan Stroman's adaptation of Mel's musical stage adaptation of his 1968 movie cost $45 million to make, which is about $55 million in today's dollars. The movie had a limited release on December 16, 2005, before opening wide on Christmas Day, opposite The Ringer, Spielberg's Munich, Cheaper by the Dozen 2, Fun with Dick and Jane, Memoirs of a Geisha, and Brokeback Mountain. With the glut of films of the holiday season, and King Kong still smashing the box office, this didn't have a chance to take the weekend, coming in in 14th place. And unfortunately, it seemed like audiences just were not craving another telling of Bialystok and Bloom, as the movie only went on to make $19.4 million domestically and $18.6 million everywhere else, giving it a total gross of $46.8 million in today's dollars. That leaves the movie in the red, and it lands with an adjusted loss per finish minute of 69.4 thousand. It's a stumble for the film, but that doesn't make it too bad. And if it's anything like its predecessor, it'll continue to have a long life. Plus, if Mel and his producers behind this are anything like they are in the film, they intentionally made it a flop, right? And they're enjoying the riches in Rio right about now. Look at you reading into things and making a funny Andy. That was good. It's all meta. It's all meta. It's the circle of love. <laughs> Can I just say, we talked a little bit about the post-credits. My favorite post-credits thing, it's actually just at the end of the actual credits. 
is Will Ferrell, ironically, who is singing. And right. then he said he whispers to the audience, right. don't forget to buy Mein Kampf in paperback available <laughs> near you at Borders Books or Barnes and Noble and Amazon.com. Good and talk. <laughs> I live for that bit. It is really funny. That is pretty funny. This movie for me sits uh, in in that kind of that Casablanca zone uh, that I, I might not like it if I gave it any thought. And uh, now that I've seen these back to back, I can tell you that I, I'm listening to the music. Definitely had the soundtrack uh, or had the uh, uh, original Broadway soundtrack in rotation today. Uh, but when it comes to watching the movie, I think I'm going back to 68 and uh, makes me curious how it's going to stack up between us. I am very curious myself. Head over to slickchart.com slash the next reel. You'll see all the movies that we've talked about on this show. If you swipe over in the show notes or head over to the website, look at the notes there for this episode. Really, there's a lot of different ways you could do it. But if you hit the word flick chart in the notes there, it'll take you right over to this movie in flick chart where you can add it to your list and see how it stacks up against ours. First up, we have the producers or Numi, the girl with the dragon tattoo. How, how about this? We've got a remake versus an original. I am going to go with Numi. Me too. The producers or La Femme Nikita. Another one that was an original. It's Kismet. It is. I am. Uh, I think I'm also going to go with La Femme Nikita. I'm going to go with the producers. Really? Yeah. Like how, how hard? How hard are you doing that? Uh, hard enough. Okay. All right. I'll give it to you. Okay. The producers or Labyrinth. There's one that's not uh, has not been remade. There's a reason. Oh wow! I'm gonna, say I'm gonna go with the producers. <laughs> I'm gonna go with the producers, and I'm gonna take you to the mat, Andy. <laughs> All right. One, one two, two, three. three. Paper. Rock. When you got it, flaunt it. <laughs> the producers are Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Indiana Jones. Indiana the Last Jones. Crusade. The producers or the Great Wall. I can't wait for the musical uh, Broadway show of that. <laughs> musical Great Wall. <laughs> I can't wait till they jump. Uh, uh, I'm going to say the producers. The producers. The producers are Howl's Moving Castle. Howl's Moving Castle, please. I will go with Howl. The producers or Once Upon a Time in America. <laughs> mm. I will say uh, the producers. I will say the producers. The producers or Field of Dreams, Field of Dreams, please. Uh, did we really talk about Field of Dreams on this show? <laughs> <laughs> Seems like another me. It was so long. I ago. will say, uh, I'll also say Field of Dreams. Well, that lands the producers uh, remake at 224 out of 382 on our chart, which is about a 41%. Well, that's. Uh, that's interesting. I I feel like that's that feels pretty good to me, even though it it landed a little bit higher on my own chart. I ranked it. It came in uh, right about four ninety two out of one thousand fifty two, uh, which is at fifty three percent. What did it do for you? I landed at seventeen eighty one out of four thousand sixty one, which is about a fifty six percent. Look at that. Yeah. It's right smack dab in the middle. Now, if I'm supposed to go by the algorithm uh, that Flickchart suggests that I use uh, for ranking this thing in other places, it should be at two and a half stars 
right smack in the middle out of five stars at letterbox.com slash the next reel. Does that feel right to you? It feels low to me. Feels a little low to me. I still enjoy it. I mean, I have issues with it, but um, I, I just enjoy the story and I really enjoy the songs and, and the and the musical numbers. I, I thought they did a great job with that. So I'm a yeah. three and a half and a like. Yeah, I think that's about right for me, too. I'm I'm so it surprises me that you are uh, right there. I would have expected you to be lower. But for me, it is is definitely a like uh, just for the music alone. And I was thinking about three and a half or four stars, I think, uh, on this watch and particularly influenced by my experience with the last movie. I'm going to stick with three and a half stars. Yeah. Well done. So that's it. That is it for our producers uh movie and its remake i think that means we're done with the movies and their remakes for this year right it closes out this uh this series and we're going to be moving on we're still continuing our celebration of films from 1968 celebrating their 50th anniversaries um next up though it will be a a chance to look at the films that were nominated for best picture in 1968 we've already talked about funny girl and so now we have uh, the remaining four nominees for uh, Best Picture, which are Lion in Winter, Oliver, Rachel, Rachel, and Romeo and Juliet. Is this so, the first time we've done this in all these years to a, a whole year of Best Pictures? It is. We've we've celebrated years before, but never have we specifically looked at just like nominees for Best Picture. That's good. That's going to be fun. I look forward to that. And we've we've got had people tell us that we need to do this that this is a year we need to do in particular so i'm i'm looking forward to it it feels like we're feels like a good way and we should also say this is the end of our 1968 exploration and so it is right right, this series kind of is the end of our our half year 1968 playtime yeah this series will take us we'll be crossing over from uh, 2018 to 2019 by the time this series is over and uh, yeah, then we'll be starting something new, and uh, and we will not be journeying into films from 1969. <laughs> that, that would no be more. A not different doing another podcast. 50th anniversary celebration. No, we are not. I'm done with that. Well, everybody, if you want to hear more of us, but you can't wait until next week's show, you can support us over on Patreon.com/slash/TheNextReel, and you can get access to our exclusive members-only weekend show, the Saturday Matinee. We talk about movie news and new trailers, and we go head-to-head in our weekly challenge, in which we put together lists of movies related in some way to the movie we're discussing that week. There are all sorts of other goodies too if you support us at different levels. Just head over to Patreon.com/slash/TheNextReel. You can learn more about us and check out the detailed show notes at thenextreel.com. You can subscribe for free in your favorite podcast app and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at The Next Reel. And if you want to get into the conversation yourself, join our Discord channel for a whole lot of movie chat with movie lovers from around the world. You can find the link to join in the show notes or on the website. The Next Reel couldn't happen without the hard work of Stephen Smart running Instagram. Ben Lott runs all things Twitter. And thanks to Eli Catlin, who graciously allows us to use his song Ragtime Instrumental as the theme to the show. You can find out more about Eli on his SoundCloud page. When the movie ends, our conversation begins.
Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon always doeth. Scraping the bottom of the bottom of the barrel this time, Andy. A lot of vileness of people who just don't like this movie. Uh, and uh, really question the existence of the performers and creators in it. Boy, do they. Hmm. Amazon really uh, brought its A game today. I'm going to go down uh, to a one star from Jeannie, who says that she wishes that she could give it no stars. Oh, Jeannie. I guess the objective of this boring ham fest was to create a cult classic like the Rocky Horror Picture Show because this movie sucks dishwater. A few funny moments that were not worth the wait by any means, highly disappointed. Was expecting more from this cast. Maybe I could have gotten into it if I had seen it at midnight in a theater filled with water pistol-toting drag queens in party hats. But I doubt it. Let me know when you have audience participation and costume contests for this one. To be fair, I'll lick her up and give it another shot. No stars. Oh, my. Five people have found this review helpful. I think that's an interesting uh, way to pitch a one-star rating is, you know, I'll watch it again if it becomes another Rocky Horror. Exactly. I'll get (laughs) drunk. I'll bring my water pistol. That's very funny. What do you got? Well, I've got a one star by Deep Six who says, pathetic example of a remake. I made two colossal mistakes concerning this movie. The first mistake was buying it, and the second was watching it. It is a remarkably bad example of a remake of a classic movie. Nathan Lane is a pale comparison to Mostel, and Broderick, well, comparing him to Wilder, would be sacrilege. Oh. And six people found that one helpful. But yeah, at least at least Deep Six is very clear on the mistakes made. Yes, very clear. <laughs> and that he was sober the whole time. Sober the whole time. There you go. Thanks, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today. <laughs> 